What a treat. Jeff Duncan Andrade is a passionate educator, man, and father. He has dedicated himself to serve his community and drive change to a system that, as he describes, is not designed to support all students. The focus and perspective of equity he describes and lives by is clear and his convictions, regardless of one's perspective, should be listened to. Jeff and Jeff's conversation was so good, we had to split this into two parts. We are proud to present part one of this discussion to you now. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. If you are in the leadership circle, you are absorbing this content in one of two ways. You're watching it the day we produce it. You're watching it because we sent it to you. You're showing it uh, to your teammates, etc. If you are not in the leadership circle, you may be um, receiving this content via our podcast, Leader Chat, and uh, we welcome you. And today is really... Um, it's not like any other time in that we're all constantly looking forward to who we talk with. This topic that we're gonna engage in today is one that we've talked about and with some experts um, with in the past, and it's just complicated. Um, it is uh, bumpy and challenging for leaders as many of our leaders are doing their best to do what's best for kids. And in the meantime, trying to remain as politically agnostic as possible, uh, especially when there are topics that are sometimes like feel like politically charged for one reason or another, even if they don't have to be. So uh, today I'm, I'm thrilled to bring somebody that I've been following for years. Um, and like I will tell him, like I tell a lot of our guests, I know them way better than they know me but it just creates uh, quite an honor for me to be able to bring in some people that um, have influenced the way that I think and believe and teach and lead, and I know you as well. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade with us, who is an associate professor of Rasa Studies and Education at San Francisco State University. He is also the founder of the Roses and Concrete Community School, a community responsive lab school in East Oakland, teaching excellence network and community responsive education group, working with schools and districts around the world to develop and support effective classroom and school cultures. As a classroom teacher and school leader in East Oakland for the past 24 years, his pedagogy has been widely studied and acclaimed for producing uncommon levels of social and academic success for students. Duncan Andrade lectures around the world and has authored two books and numerous, actually maybe three or four at this point, numerous books and journals, articles, and book chapters on effective practices in schools. In 2015, Duncan Andrade became a National Commission on Teaching and America's Future Commissioner and was part of the Great Educators Invited to the White House on National Teacher Appreciation Day by President Obama in 2016. Duncan Andrade was ranked as one of the 100 most influential scholars by Edweek Public Influence Rankings. Duncan Andrade holds a PhD in Social and Cultural Studies in Education and a Bachelor of Arts degree in Literature, both from the University of California, Berkeley. And I could have gone on and on, so I had to kind of pull from different parts. But let me just welcome Jeff to the screen with me. Jeff, um, thanks for being here. It's, uh, it's awesome to see you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for and, having me. And you're coming right now. You're, you're, you're in Oakland as we speak, correct? Yep. So I read your bio, but I miss things, right? So it's hard to, 
to kind of capture somebody in reading about them. What what did I miss that would be important to kind of bring to light from the beginning? What what how maybe how has your life been uh, over the past several years, and what are you up to these days? Well, um, yeah, I mean, the minute you write a bio, it's outdated. So right. um, I, I appreciate this as the opening question. I, I think the thing, the things that are you know really influential for me that that aren't necessarily um, listed off in that bio or first that I'm, I'm a single dad of two boys, Amaru and Tayari, who are nine years old going on 90, um, that, you know, they're in fourth grade at the school that we started in our community. Um, so I experience uh, the things that I talk about, the things that I research, um, you know, from a lot of different perspectives, including as a father that's um, that's handing his children over to a school every day. Um, in addition to that, I mean, you mentioned I'm in Oakland. I, you know, I live in in the 3400 block of East Oakland. So, I, you know, I live in the community that I've taught in and served now for this is my 30th year, um, and that has a really heavy influence on um, on how I think about the work and how I think about the kind of research that I need to do and the kind of conversations that I need to have. So the way that I, you know, the thing about the bio is, um, or even I think the way that people might think they understand the way I go about the work uh, is, is like these very siloed um, approaches where, you know, yes, I am a, I am a full professor in ethnic studies at San Francisco State. And yes, I am a father. And yes, I am a community member. And yes, I am a teacher. And yes, I am a researcher. Like I'm all those things. Um, but I think the way that people often sort out this work is, um, you know, thinking about the bucket that you're in or the lane that you're driving in. And for me, um, each of those respective lanes influences the other lane. So when I'm you know, when I'm coaching my sons in, in jujitsu and, you know, and all their classmates, um, I'm, I'm thinking about my research and I'm thinking about schools and I'm thinking about my community. And when I'm doing research, I'm thinking about my coaching and I'm right. And so um, I think there's that, that that's what I love about this field is that it's, um, it's by definition, very dynamic. And I think one of the mistakes that we make, particularly in leadership, um, is that we um, we get overly siloed, and um, and that can really restrict uh, the way in which we we think and process and dream what it is that we want to get done as leaders. Well, the other thing about a bio too, Jeff, is that you know sometimes it describes what has been accomplished by a person. Right. And so then you become defined based upon, you know, your area of expertise, your research, et cetera. But possibly you can take us back relative to some of your early motivations to actually do what you do. Like what were some of your initial whys that have kind of driven this career so far? And I know you have you know, more to go, but what was it that caused you to lean into some of the things that have really uh, defined you, right? You have, you have a legacy thus far, but you know, it started somewhere and what was that or how did that come to be? Yeah. 
I think the, I used to get asked that question a lot and not feel like I had a very good answer. I would just kind of dance around it. And then one of my um, close friends and, and colleagues uh, whose, whose work I really respect and admire, his name's Dr. Patrick Kamanyan. He's a faculty member at um, the University of San Francisco. He runs their urban teacher ed program. Um, anyway, he, um, I, I did some research on, on his um, classroom when he was teaching in South Central LA, really an exceptional teacher. And um, I asked him that question and he, he gave the answer that I now like to use. Okay, um, you, you stole it. Yeah, so, um, you know, he said, he said, I wanted to be the teacher that I, that I never had. And, and I think that's, that's an apt description of what, um, what brought me into this work. Um, you know, I grew up the youngest of seven kids um, in, you know, a community that's, you know, not unlike the one where I teach in. Um, and, um, and I never felt like school saw me. And, um, and I never, I never had a teacher that I saw myself in. And, um, you know, really was, um, sports was my saving grace, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, Honestly, like that's why I went to school <laughs> and, and I didn't go to school a lot, but I went enough so that I could play. Um, and, um, and I think that's also why, you know, I spent a, a lot of my teaching career coaching and that's why I still coach. Um, because I think there's a, there's a space there. There's a, my second book is called what a coach can teach a teacher. Um, and so that really influenced me going into education because I knew that um, by going into education that I would have the opportunity to coach kids, um, you know, more like formally, right? Sure, sure. And, um, and, and I knew that without that, um, I would have a very, very different life. And, and, I, and, and I wanted to create that kind of experience that I had as an athlete um, in the classroom. And so that's, that's really what, um, drove me to become, become a teacher because I knew it didn't have to be the way that I experienced it, that it could, it could be different. Um, and I wanted to figure out how to become that kind of teacher and that kind of coach and that, that kind of community member. I think the other, the other thing that really drives me is, you know, I always, um, so I, I, as I said, I'm the youngest of seven and my, my older brothers and sisters, um, didn't have the success that I had, um, athletically or, or academically. Um, and I can remember, um, teachers saying to me, you're not like your older brothers and sisters. Mm. And the minute they said that I stopped trusting them because I actually was a lot like my older brothers and sisters. And, and the thing is like my teachers didn't live in my neighborhood. And so when the sun would go down, they didn't know what I did. Right. But I was out in the streets just like they were just like my brothers and sisters were. Um, but because I was sort of, I don't know, like seen as the chosen one or special or whatever, um, that I would get, um, I, I would get slid out of a lot of the more, um, eventful things, right. That might, might be happening out there. 
and uh, and so I was protected, right? And yeah. I, it, it was always striking to me the way that, um, well, so I, I feel like there's a there's a debt due that because of that that I, I owe my community um, because of all that they gave to me, um, and and I, what was also striking to me was that the way in which school and and educators in it defined success for me and people from my community was very different than the way success was defined for the kids I ended up at Berkeley with and who were you know coming from very wealthy families often multi-generational Berkeley alums right and um and for me for people from my community, success was defined by how far away from our communities we could get. And, and school was, was, you know, was described as an opportunity to escape. And, you know, I never wanted to escape my neighborhood. I never wanted to escape my people. I never wanted to escape my cousin on the corner. And what's, what's embedded in that statement is that they are my problem, right? My mother is my problem. My neighborhood is my problem. My community, my people are my problem. And if I can just get to where the good people are, then I'll be worth so much more. And, and I patently rejected that. Um, and I didn't want school to teach me how to escape my neighborhood. I wanted school to teach me how to transform my neighborhood. And that was not the model. And so you, you literally had like an apartheid-like definition of success where wealthy kids are told that school is an opportunity for them to reproduce the, the, the wealth and privilege that they have. And success for them is how closely they can return to the community where they're growing up and going to school. And so what you have school supporting unwittingly sometimes, and, and I think actually deliberately and consciously sometimes, is a model of out-migration in, uh, in, in vulnerable and wounded communities where the, 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 the quote unquote best and brightest, right, are identified and out-migrated to then strengthen the very communities that are already strong. And so the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, right? And I, um, I never wanted to participate in that model. Like, I, I was always looking to understand how can I use school as a way to um, bring resources and opportunities and power back to my community. Because for me, that's, that's how I think about success. And that's very much the message that I try to teach my children and I try to teach the children in my community. And not so much by saying it, but by doing it. Like, all my students know where I live. I mean, just yesterday I was on a, I was doing another podcast and one of my former students just like walked up and like started knocking on the, on the window. And, and, and I stopped the podcast. I was like, Hey, I gotta, I gotta go talk to him, you know? And, um, that I think is, um, it doesn't happen enough in, in our communities. And, um, and I think that, that school's a, a major contributor to the reason that it doesn't. Well, I, I may not say this correctly, but um, I've heard you say that, and I may butcher this, but the, the goal is not to help uh, students get out of poverty, but the goal of education is to end poverty. Did, did I say that somewhat close to how you described it? Well, I don't, 
I, I wouldn't use the word goal, right? I would say it's, for me, it's purpose, right? That is, and, and the distinction here is one that I um, learned from the work of Angela Valenzuela, who wrote a book called Subtractive Schooling, um, where she does a really good job of, of drawing out this, um, this distinction between schooling and education or what she calls educacion. Um, and, you know, and so I, I've come to say that, you know, schooling is the process by which you institutionalize people to accept their position in life. And education is the process by which you support people to transform it. And, and I think the purpose of, of public schools in a pluralistic multiracial democracy should not be to escape poverty. It should be to end it. And that is not the model we have. We have a, we have a, as I said earlier, we have a model of out migration where the purpose of, of school, particularly in vulnerable and wounded communities, um, is to escape poverty. There's no conversation about how to end it. Maybe for you personally, right? But not structurally, not collectively. That's, that's not part of our public school agenda. And that's a problem. And, and that's why, despite on its face, us saying that we live in a pluralistic multiracial democracy, we are the most radically unequal of any of the democratic societies ever, right? Our wealth gap is bigger than any industrialized nation has ever had, and it's growing. So how is it that we have proclaimed to have an equal education system while at the same time having the most radically unequal society in the history of modern democracies? Something doesn't vibe there, right? And the truth is that if we're honest, right, that the reason for that is, is because schools are not equal and they're not equitable. And it's the worst kept secret in our society. Everybody knows that the kids that, that have the least get the least in schools and the kids that have the most get the most in schools. And you, you cannot tell me that we are a democratic nation when you have that kind of structured, known and silent inequality. That is by definition apartheid. And so you, if, you've got an, if you've got young people for 13 years, for seven hours a day, experiencing educational apartheid, social apartheid, economic apartheid, then why would we expect anything different to be the result when they become adults in the larger society? If we want to disrupt that, and I do, like I, I believe in the vision of a pluralistic multiracial democracy. I think it's possible. I think it's impossible if we don't seriously rethink how we're approaching public schools in this country. And I mean, I mean like repurpose them. And, and that kind of, you know, vision, that kind of um, conversation, that kind of commitment that would um, need to happen in order for that to get operationalized is not only not happening, but it's, it's not supported. And, and you know, leaders are, are rarely in a position to actually have those kinds of conversations in any meaningful way. And I think that that's as much a policy problem as it is a, a problem of practice. So you, you, Jeff, you have this, um, this, this, this 
reputation on truth telling, right? And uh, the last several years, I think, have really shaken us in a number of ways. This, you know, during COVID and post-COVID world, and I think it is it has changed some perspectives, whether that has been a good thing or a bad. It just, it has changed perspectives. Has, have anything shifted for you over the past several years as you've kind of watched us go through this and we're still kind of coming out almost undefined, but something, some things have changed for people. Has anything changed for you? Has it only strengthened your perspective? Has it modified it in any way? Yeah, not not a lot has changed for me. I mean, I think I heard this um, <laughs> this uh, indigenous leader say when when those questions were kind of getting batted around that, you know, we've been in pandemic, um, and you know, so this is nothing new to us. And suddenly, like you know, whole communities that have never really experienced or had any proximity to the kind of pain that. Um, that black and indigenous people in particular, but I think poor people and people of color more generally have been experiencing for centuries in, in this nation. And suddenly, you know, people were freaking out because they couldn't get toilet paper. And, you know, maybe, maybe rightfully so like that, that's, you know, I like to have toilet that's paper. That's a problem. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but it's like, why why didn't that create greater widespread solidarity and empathy like damn like that's how it is for you that's how it's been for you generationally and and i think that again this goes back to schools because we don't teach that in schools we don't teach empathy we don't teach consciousness we don't teach critical thinking and so this the opportunity was largely missed for our nation to learn some really important lessons because we don't tell the truth in schools. We don't tell the truth that we are the only industrialized nation in the history of the world to have committed two genocides, the genocide against African people and the genocide against Western indigenous people. And so how, how can we possibly expect our children to um, recover from all of that pain and all of the, the the suffering that that continues to cause us because you, you you just you can't duck the truth with silence or sugarcoating and lies like you, you, you and, and and i don't know like i feel like that's one of the things that a responsible parent teaches their child and yet children think that you know frankly that we're full of shit because we they know we're lying they know that we are lying to them in schools and but we just keep on doing it and instead of like taking a step back and 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 trusting the capacity of our children one because first of all they know like I, I don't know what we think we're protecting them from like they know and and so you know for me like i want to I, I want my children to know and i want them to know that i don't know the answer and I think schools have a really hard time with that because of the way that we've designed schools, that the teacher's supposed to know, the principal's supposed to know, the superintendent's supposed to know, but we don't. We don't know. We don't know how to get out of this. We don't know how to course correct. But I have so much confidence in children, in their creativity, 
in their compassion, in their the, the natural empathy that is born into the human species. And I think if schools started asking more questions and doing less telling, then kids would start asking different questions. And, you know, when you ask different questions, you come up with different answers. And I honestly believe that that is, that's our only hope <laughs> as in, like, if you look at our national health data, it like, we're in trouble, but we are re like, we are seriously careening towards a cliff. The, and, and there's a law, you know, there, there's a law of diminishing returns on, on when you can actually address that, right? There's a, there's a point at which when your car is careening towards a cliff, that it doesn't matter if you pump the brakes anymore because the, the momentum's you, you're not stopping. And, and, and we're like, if when you talk to public health officials pre pandemic, they were, they were banging that drum loud. Like we're, we have the worst health outcomes of, of any of the industrialized nation and it's not even close. And we spend like 100 X on our healthcare system compared to, you know, other, other nations. And the reason we do that is because we're so sick. Like when do you need healthcare? Right? When, when you're already sick. And so I think that part of the truth telling is being honest about, I mean, are we data driven or not? Right. Or, or I was working with this, group yesterday that was saying, well, we want to be data informed. I'm like, okay, like fine, data informed, data driven, data informed and driven. But are we or not? Because if we are, our, our national public health data is a statement about what's happening with children when they're little, right? And and the the, the work that, that myself and, and some of my colleagues that I respect the most uh, in, in the country are doing is really pushing on this idea that we need to repurpose schools to focus foundationally on the wellness of children and that schools should make one core promise and it's the promise i want as a father and that promise is that when you pick your children up at the end of the day they will be more well than when you drop them off and, and that's my problem. If you give me your baby for seven hours, I promise that when I hand them back to you, they will be more well. And that's impossible to do. I know as a teacher and as a school leader, like that's impossible to do every single day with every kid. And that's okay. That's okay. I don't actually expect that to be delivered on every single day as a father because I know as an educator that you can't, but what I wanna see schools do after that promise is to acknowledge and atone when they miss the mark with our babies. And, and the reason I use atone instead of apologize, and this is like, this is a big thing at our school. This is a big thing that I try to teach my own children and that, and, and that, you know, a way in which I try to live my life imperfectly, of course, but, you know, I think in schools, we teach apology, you know, we teach kids to say, I'm sorry. And then we teach the kid who hears the apology that they have kind of have to accept it. Right. right and then, right. We, and then it's all good. And we just move on. Right. 
Atonement, though, is ancestrally what we have taught our children. And atonement does include apology, like you need to acknowledge if you right, have done harm and you have to make it right. So when schools miss with children, they need to acknowledge it, they need to apologize, and they need to atone by pouring extra in to that child the next day. And I don't see that as a core, like foundational cultural practice of our schools. It's like, it's, and, and this gets back to the truth telling, right? That you make a mistake, like, yeah, okay, slavery was a mistake. We should apologize for that. That's not good enough. Like, in what context is that, like, okay to just be like, yeah, you know, but that was all in the past. Like, and now we have the neuroscience and the physiology to clearly show that no, actually it's not in the past. That multi-generational trauma is an actual thing. And that when you experience unrelenting toxic stress and trauma, your DNA gets altered, which means that the suffering of African indigenous people as a direct result of US institutional policies, including schools, is carrying forward to gen generationally. It's not stopping. And if we don't address that as a nation with children, then that cycle will repeat itself. And the last thing I want to say on this truth telling thing is the way I, I don't know if, if your, your um, listeners know this guy named Brian Stevenson, but if they don't, they should check him out. So he's arguably the best known death row lawyer in the United States. Um, they recently made a film about some of his work called Just Mercy, also a book. Anyway, I had a chance to share the stage with Brian um, pre, pre pandemic. And he said something that that really impacted me. And he said, you know, the problem with the pursuit of equity and, and justice and, you know, democracy and fairness in this country is not that we don't have a lot of really smart, committed people working on it every day, because we do. He says, the problem is that a lot of us that are doing that work do it in a way where we we design the intervention or the response based on our own own worldview and as a result of that what we effectively come up with and i see this happening with school leaders all the time that their 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 heart and their head are in the right place um, and they come up with these solutions to these things that are really troubling them and troubling their school community. But the solutions they end up coming up with are effectively aspirin. Mm -hmm. what, what, and, and the thing about aspirin is like, it will temporarily relieve the symptoms of a headache, but it won't stop you from getting headaches. Right. And what Brian Stevenson says is, he says, what, what we need to have happen with folks who are so committed is there has to be a commitment to getting proximity to the pain that you're actually trying to resolve. And when you get proximity, 
when you start spending time in community, when you start spending time with those families and those kids that are really struggling in your space, with those teachers that are really struggling in, in your space, you need to humble up and hush up. And you need to understand that the people that are in that pain know what they need. They don't need you to tell them what they need. They need you to listen and then figure out as a leader, how do you implement the solutions that they already have? And I, schools have always struggled with that because schools do to people instead of with people. And I think that's why the most vulnerable and wounded children and communities continue to reject school because they know it, it lacks proximity to the pain that they actually most need resolved. And so the most effective educators that I'm around are first and foremost ethnographers of the communities they serve. Like they get proximate, right? And, and they listen and they trust that the people that, that are experiencing that pain know what they need. And then as a leader or as a, you know, as a, as a, as a classroom leader or as a school leader or as a systems leader, then they start figuring out with the knowledge that they have of the institution and, and, and leadership about how do I implement those things that the community says that they want. We hope you enjoyed part one of the discussion with Jeff Duncan Andrade. Look out for part two of this conversation to be released in the near future. Be well.